Jesse, how's it going? I'm okay. I I sort of screwed something up last week. You? You've made wait, you? Me? Him? Uh yeah, I um so I live in Brooklyn. If you live in Brooklyn, there's no reason to go into Manhattan. It's just this decaying island of deserted skyscrapers. This was true even before the pandemic, but I I needed to get some uh, professional headshots taken for the first time in my life. For your new model career? Yeah, these are uh these are waist down nude shots. <laughs> I said, look, no head stuff. No head stuff. <laughs> Bottom shots. Bottom, bottom shots for the uh, for the book jacket. No, I have never had professional headshots taken. My book is coming out in April. It seemed like it was time. My most recent headshots were from 2013. I don't think I could get away with that. So I uh, I had a little adventure into the city and some stuff happened. Tell me about it. So first, I'm I'm on the train already late and sweaty. And taking a train in New York is never pleasant. But during the pandemic, it's just a nightmare because like you're trying to carve out as much space as possible between you and everyone. You assume everyone has coronavirus. It's just the normal stuff. I'm sitting there hunched over my phone looking at 538, like trying to get the signal so I can refresh the articles. And as I'm arriving at my stop, this woman points at me and starts screaming in an accent I can't place that I'm a pervert. (laughs) I bet it was one of our listeners. It was probably one of our listeners. (laughs) Shout out to the listeners. She basically reacted as though I had been looking at porn on the phone when I was looking at 538. And it's a very uncomfortable feeling. Even though I don't think anyone thought I'd done anything wrong, like to have, you know, a half full train, a woman point at you, a large male, a large sweaty male at that, and be like, pervert! And I couldn't understand what most of she was saying, but it was just very unpleasant. So what did you do? Well, I just, I tried to ignore her and like make an incredulous expression. I sort of like held up my hands and my phone. It's like, guys, I don't, like no no one on the train like cared enough, but I just wanted to like indicate innocence. And then <laughs> she got off and I realized, fuck, this is my stop too. <laughs> so, <it's> like, <laughs> so I had to get off and sort of like keep a safe distance from her. I think I was much more scared of her than she was of me. But um, she probably, she probably thought you were Jeffrey Tubin. Yeah, or Jeffrey Epstein, or one of the one of the one of the bad Jeffreys. But then the bright side was I I uh, get to the park. It's a beautiful fall day. This nice woman takes a bunch of my photos, and we're um she's taking photos of me. I'm leaning against a railing in a sultry manner, of course. Uh, <laughs> she's leaning against the other railing. Her friend has like a light thing that she's holding, or like a separate flash, um, just one of those devices. And a family walks between us, and we're like, okay, go ahead. And the, this little girl. Looks at the photographer and the woman holding up the light thing and then looks at me and she looks at me and she goes, are you a model? (laughs) (laughs) No, fuck you. That was it. No, that was the exact – everyone – okay, I laughed hysterically. I I I said to the photographer, hey, did you hear what that little girl said? She asked if I was a model. She started laughing. I told my mom. My mom started laughing. Every person I tell this story laughs louder and longer than the last person, which is really mean. Jesse, I think you could be a model, a cargo short model, or like a Yarmulke model. <laughs> yes, you could. You could also be. You and Ben Shapiro could uh, go into business together. If you want uh, rare Judaica at low prices, uh, <laughs> so yeah, that was my trip to the city. I'm never going back. I understand that. It sounds like it was deeply traumatizing, but thank you for sharing. Uh, and Jesse, what podcast are we listening to right now? This is Blocked and Reported. I am Jesse Single, a verified pervert and model, and I'm Katie Herzog. And today we are going to be talking about what are we? What are we talking about? I do this every week, but every, literally every week I forget what we're talking about right when we're about to start talking about it. I forget what where I am right now. We are going to talk about uh, Glenn Greenwald's departure from the Intercept and uh, the controversy over everyone's favorite section. Section 230. Exactly. Uh, let's start with Glenn. How about that? Yes. Okay. Glenn Greenwald is one of the founders of The Intercept. He is a very well-known uh, investigative journalist, big free speech guy. He lives in Brazil. He has uh, run afoul of the authoritarian-ish government there, Jair Bolsonaro, and, and published some stuff damning of him. Glenn is a polarizing figure because I think it is safe to say, and I believe we have both um, – at least, like, DM'd with him. He he can be a dick on Twitter, right? Yeah, he can be a dick on Twitter. Glenn has the um, he is the he is confident in his positions. Let's put it that way. Uh, I don't always agree with him. In fact, I frequently finding myself disagreeing with him. Um, but I've never fi- found myself on Glenn's 
bad side, which I am thankful for, because he is not somebody I personally would want to have come for me. No. Uh, <laughs> Although, actually, it would probably be good for my reputation, to be honest. So maybe I maybe I should say something uh, anti-Greenwald. Anti go for it. Just right now. Just go for it. He's a predator. Wow. Damning allegations. <laughs> Okay, this is a reference to. Do you remember earlier this summer? Oh, his young, his young, uh, younger husband. His husband is not actually young. His husband is like in his like late thirties. But they met when he was when he was like nineteen, and Glenn was older. They've been together for like twenty years. Um, but some like some lefty on Twitter started accusing his husband, uh, accusing him of grooming his own husband. Um, it was a little homophobic, a little fucked up. Um, I, but once again, Glenn, Glenn like doesn't pull punches. Um, he reacted to this uh, very strongly, and he was pissed about it for a bunch of days. Glenn also has that sort of like uh, Barry Weiss effect on people where if you saw the way some progressives talked about Glenn Greenwald on Twitter, you would think Glenn is like the problem with the world. Um, I guess the difference is Glenn sort of asks for it because like he really gets in there on Twitter in a way Barry Weiss doesn't. He does. The interesting thing to me about Glenn is that he was beloved during the Bush administration because he broke a lot of big stories about uh, national security and war on terror stuff. And then he also broke the Snowden story. So for people who um, are have an anti-authoritarian bent, Glenn has been sort of a hero. This is ch- His reputation has really changed in recent years where now liberals and lefties sort of hate him. I don't think Glenn's the one who has changed here. I think the media has changed, and I think maybe the rest of us has changed. But he's been remarkably consistent. He, I, I don't think he's like an anarchist or anything like that. And in fact, he's a Bernie guy, so he must not hate big government entirely. Uh, but he's very anti-authoritarian. And but his reputation has has like really shifted in the last year. A lot of people think that he's a, a conservative now because he does things like go on Fox News. Right. Yeah. And and part of it is he's spoken out against sort of some of the woke wars. He doesn't like this sort of what he sees as creeping illiberalism in American progressive media. The other really big thing is Russia. He is a big skeptic of sort of what he calls Russiagate. He he thinks there's basically nothing there and that, you know, that that the Democratic establishment is now sort of aligning itself with like ex-CIA spooks and ex-Iraq warmongers you know, all to get at Trump by being sort of very pro-surveillance state, very pro-FBI, pro-CIA. That's his basic critique. And while the American left has a wide array of opinions about Russia and there's like a vibrant discussion there, Glenn is pretty hardline. Like, there's nothing here. This is basically all bullshit. Right. On the one side, you have like Jonathan Chait saying, you know, it's possible that Trump is an actual Russian asset. And then you have Glenn saying... No, Trump is a moron, but there's no evidence for this. And I think Glenn has, since the Mueller report, I think Glenn has really been proven correct on a lot of this stuff. Like, as he points out all the time, Rachel Maddow spent four years pushing this narrative that Trump was, you know, involved with, uh, with like Russian hacks of the DNC that Trump colluded. And the Mueller report and subsequent reporting and investigation has really shown that not to be true. And there's been very little accounting for that on the left. Like, nobody lost their jobs. Nobody even seemed to apologize. Well, but isn't it – okay, so like Russian hackers did target Podesta and leak the DNC. Like, they had a role. The idea that Trump was like – It's Trump, right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. It's not that – it's not that the Russians that, like, the narrative that Russia is trying to influence American elections is false. It's the narrative that Trump colluded with Russians to influence the election. Glenn has pointed this out, but, like, some of the people who are, like, fainting onto their couches over the idea of Russia interfering with our election have not been consistent in that position that one country should not interfere in another country. Uh, so I think it's bad. I think the truth is somewhere in between. I know that's like a cop-out answer, but I really do. Because I, I neither think Russiagate is like 100% bullshit or like the sort of hysterical stuff going on on like resistance Hillary Clinton – uh, land is not good. Okay. Anyway, this all brings us to what happened, um, yesterday, right? We're recording Friday. This happened Thursday. Yes. Okay. So Glenn is at the intercept for years, co-founder of it. There's signs of a divide between him and the rest of the sort of newsroom or mostly virtual newsroom, I think, although they have a New York office, um, cultural stuff, political stuff. There's a divide. 
Yesterday, all of a sudden, he pops up on Substack announcing that he has left The Intercept. He has left because he says he is being censored. He wanted to publish an article basically arguing that the progressive media are ignoring this whole Hunter Biden thing, the laptop thing, the Delaware computer shop thing. Uh, in his view, the media have handled that irresponsibly. The story he comes out with when he pops up on Substack is that even though in his contract he's basically allowed to publish whatever he wants without editorial interference, uh, except in certain outlying cases, in this case, his editors at The Intercept were basically like, no, you need to take a lot of this stuff out. Glenn phrased it as though they wanted him to basically take out all his criticisms of Joe Biden. I think the truth was more complicated than that because he also posted emails we can get into. But um, yeah, so it was this whole big thing. And, and I think people were sort of putting this in the same context of Andrew Sullivan leaving New York Mag to set up on Substack um, and Barry Weiss leaving New York Times, the New York Times to do whatever she's going to do. And Katie next. Herzog leaving The Stranger. Most importantly, uh, right. So, I mean, what, 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 what was your first take on all this? Because I have a lot of thoughts. So my first take, I have to admit, was like everyone else's, I think, was a bit partisan. I like Glenn. Uh, Glenn and I – DM occasionally. Uh, we've never like spoken offline, but I like Glenn and I have like real distrust for media institutions and organizations lately. Um, and so I was kind of happy for him. So like, I want to like get that out, out of the way first because this, this really did fall as usual into these sort of tribal lines. If you don't like Glenn, Obviously, he's throwing a temper tantrum, which is actually what Betsy Reed, the editor of The Intercept, published a scathing uh, statement in response to this. Let me read you a couple sentences of this. Th so this was published on The Intercept. Didn't have a byline, but it was published in The Intercept. And it was also published, uh, like the statement was sent out to like uh, Washington Post and some other places. She says, the narrative Glenn presents about his departure is teeming with distortions and inaccuracies, all of them designed to make him appear a victim rather than as a grown person throwing a tantrum. It would take too long to point them all out here, but we intend to correct the record in time. For now, it is important to make clear that our goal in editing his work was to ensure that it would be accurate and fair. While he accuses us of political bias, it was he who was attempting to recycle the dubious claims of a political campaign, the Trump campaign, and launder them as journalism. So just this damning statement. And he was actually like fairly respectful and even complimentary of Betsy Reed in his own like blog posts about this. Um, it, I've never seen a boss or an editor say anything negative about an employee or former employee publicly like this. It's a crazy thing to say that this man is, is like throwing a, a tantrum. And maybe it's true. Um, but it's kind of hard to tell from the emails that Glenn published what's going on here because so, okay. So Glenn, Glenn publishes yesterday three blog posts on Substack. The first one is his, his letter explaining his like resignation letter to the intercept and also his explanation of what happened. The second is his, the, the piece that he wrote that he says was censored about Joe Biden and Hunter Biden. And the third was the emails between him and his editors that he says show clear signs of censorship. Reading the emails, and I, and I, I hope you were like better able to parse these emails than I was. It wasn't as clear as I expected it to be from his initial blog post. Um, and, and so if you read between the lines, like there are, there are places. So Glenn's, so Glenn's like not a takedown, this like opinion piece about Joe Biden and about how the media is ignoring this story, which is actually true. Like, in, did you see the NPR public editor statement about why they weren't covering the Biden story? Yeah. It, yeah. NPR. And Glenn actually used this tweet as like the, uh, the, the cover image of his post. Let me actually find it. The tweet was, why haven't you seen any stories from NPR about the New York Post's Hunter Biden story? And then they quote um, Terrence Samuels, who's the managing editor for news. And this is from the office of the public editor at, at NPR. And Terrence Samuels says, we don't want to waste our time on stories that are not really stories. And we don't want to waste our listeners and readers time on stories that are just pure distractions. And the NPR like cut this out, cut out this poll quote and put it in a tweet, which is like a crazy fucking thing to do. No, I mean, there, there has been this sense of like, this is such polluted information. We're not even going to acknowledge its existence, which is pretty different from journalism's traditional role of vetting it. That said, th there are some problems with it, but it's like complicated. I I'm not sure 
every outlet has sort of acknowledged that complexity rather than just pretending this is all like a Russian plot for which there's no evidence. So, I mean, all, what this all comes down to is 2016 when the media covered, you know, the Hillary Clinton email week in the last weeks of the campaign. And since then, you know, for four years, people have been blaming the media for the loss of Hillary Clinton to Donald Trump. I still think Hillary Clinton would have lost regardless because I think people just like irrationally or maybe rationally in some cases just like fucking hate Hillary Clinton and have always hated Hillary Clinton. And the fact that the election for many people felt like such a foregone conclusion that they didn't bother to vote. So I'm not actually sure, and this is just speculation and a feeling on my part, but I'm not actually sure that it was like her emails that actually were like the catalyst that made her lose. There's probably played a role, but I don't think that's the whole story. I think the whole story is like her candidacy. Anyway, so Glenn publishes these emails. In the emails, the he so it's between him and his editors during the editing process of this piece. And his editors were totally professional. But there's some like backstory that isn't that isn't in here. And the backstory was actually covered, I think, better by Matt Taibbi in his blog post about this than Glenn itself. So Matt points out that these editors, that Glenn has a long history of conflict with these particular editors. I'll just read a little bit from from Matt's piece. I think that he does a better job of explaining this, like the complexities of this, than I would be able to do it. Okay, so this is regarding uh, who would edit. So Glenn pitches this piece about uh, about not just the media sort of cover up of the Hunter Biden laptop, but also he digs into Hunter Biden and Joe Biden's connections with Burisma, this like Ukrainian company that uh, that Hunter sat on the board for. Um, so Glenn pitches this piece. And then and then so this is Matt Tybee writing. Reed, that's Betsy Reed, explained that any piece Greenwald wrote on, Bur- on Biden Burisma subject would have to go through, quote, the editorial process and fact checking that we do with any story with this kind of high profile, end quote. Peter Moss would edit, but Reed also noted that there would be a lot of in-house knowledge that they could all tap into. By in-house knowledge, she meant the work of Robert Mackey and, James- and Jim Risen, two intercept reporters with whom Glenn Green, with whom Greenwald clashed in the past. Risen had already loudly denounced the Post story not only as a conspiracy theory, but foreign disinformation. Essentially, Reed was telling Greenwald that his piece would be quasi-edited by people with whom he had major public disagreements about Russia-related issues going back years. So I think that part of the backstory is totally necessary. So when we're, when I'm reading these emails, like what I'm seeing is these, is these editors being like pretty professional and saying like, well, you know, you need more evidence for these claims and these claims and these claims. But what you don't see is that these are editors who have already stated that they don't believe the story, that they think that this is Russian information and that they are opposed to Greenwald on this particular issue. Um, I think that's important. Like having worked in a newsroom and knowing if I had an editor who like who I knew hated me and who didn't want me to write about detransition and that editor is editing my pieces about detransition, I'm going to have a problem with it. Yeah, no, it, it's complicated because like that context is important, but you're right that like the, the Peter Moss wrote a so-called story memo to Glenn that comes across as just normal and professional, basically saying that the piece would be better trimmed down a little bit, focusing more on the media angle than the question of what Joe Biden did. You know, I I also just like a situation where a writer has it in his contract that he can't really be edited is not going to end well under any circumstances and is pretty unusual. I've never heard of anybody else having this sort of um, this sort of arrangement. Glenn is definitely atypical when it comes to this. Um, You know, so, so there's a couple questions here for one. Glenn alleges that the reason that this, that, that they tried to, to edit these parts of the story, the parts of the story that were damning to Joe Biden out was because the intercept wants Joe Biden to win. I don't doubt that that's true. That isn't because the intercept is fans of Joe Biden. In fact, the intercept published the initial Tara Reid allegations against Joe Biden, reporting that subsequently didn't really hold up to scrutiny. Um, you know, so, but that was during, the difference is that that was during the primary when it was still possible, they thought it was still possible for Bernie to win. Like, if anything, like, Intercept is in Bernie's camp, not in Biden's camp. That said, they are anti-Trump, for sure. And like a lot of places, I think, you know, this is a, this is a staff made up of human beings. This is a partisan, a partisan outlet. And I think it's, absolutely probably true that the staff, including these editors, don't want to publish anything that could potentially be used to either hurt the Biden campaign or 
to give the appearance that they hurt the, the Biden campaign. Because nobody wants to deal with another four years of people saying, you're the one who got Donald Trump elected. I, I like, it's just not hard for me to believe that. No, it's not. Um, I will say, like, Glenn in his emails to Peter Moss does sort of, there could be backstory there to which we're not privy, but he sort of goes zero to 60, like, pretty straightforwardly accusing Peter Moss of, like, being in the bag for Biden in response to what seemed like a reasonable story memo. And For sure. Yeah, I just think with this story, like, there's this gap, because you have Hunter Biden, who is a sleazy, troubled guy who is clearly trying to trade on his father's influence, but no one including Senate Republicans who have like investigated this enthusiastically has been able to really draw any of the necessary connections to Joe Biden himself. You would need to be to consider this a genuine scandal. So yeah, I mean, it's, this is complicated. Glenn was just in such a weird position at the intercept and was clearly, there was clearly a lot of conflict there, but um, I just, this, to me, this doesn't fit in the sort of Andrew Sullivan, Barry Weiss mold because like, I don't know why it doesn't. It just doesn't feel that way to me. Jesse, we deal with facts here, not feelings. That's true. Facts, not feelings. But let's ask a couple of the like pertinent questions here. Maybe we can get to the root of, of why your feelings are what they are. So first of all, do you think that this is a case of censorship of Glenn being censored by his editors? I mean, part of what makes that complicated answer is he had that crazy contract saying they can't really edit him. And, and so the contract stated that, um, he could take a piece elsewhere if they didn't want it. Not that he automatically gets to publish it. In one of the emails from either Moss or Reed, they basically say they would strongly prefer him to not take it elsewhere. He still could have taken it elsewhere. It sounds like they have a right to say no, and he has a right to take it elsewhere, and he chose to resign instead. I, especially because Peter Moss gave like a long, lengthy, gave him a long, lengthy story memo asking him to make certain edits, which is something every journalist has happened to them. I just, I'm having trouble viewing this as censorship. I mean, do you think I'm missing something? Well, uh, I think that we just don't have all the, all of the information. I think that if it is true, as Glenn claims, that the reason that they didn't want him to report on potential damning connections between Joe Biden and Ukrainian businessmen or Chinese businessmen or whoever is because they want to sway the election, then yes, I think that is clearly the suppression of a negative political story for political means. I think that is like an obvious case of, of censorship. That said, from the emails, like what they're asking for is basically more evidence. And what Glenn points out is that they don't have any like specific claims in this story, in this story memo and the feedback from his piece. There's not, they don't like pull out lines and say like, this is incorrect. This is incorrect. This is incorrect. And it's an opinion right. piece. Um, you know, which, which makes it fuzzier in the, in the, in the first place. Um, so if it is true, if Glenn is indeed correct that this was suppressed as a means of, uh, you know, um, influencing the election. Well, yeah, I think that's, I think that's censorship. I don't think there's, like, it's a contractual dispute, but I don't think that there's any, there should be any question that there's a censorship. I just don't know if that's actually what happened because I don't know these people's internal motivations. Yeah. Um, Glenn also said on Substack that he's like in talks with various people to start a new media outlet. And I just, I want that outlet to know that you can, I think I can speak for you here, Katie. We will go work for this outlet, not knowing anything about it. All we need is $10 million a year. And also a guarantee that we won't be edited. Yes, you can't edit or you also can't disagree with us online or in private. Have you ever had major conflicts over a story with an editor? Mm, I mean, usually what happens is they'll kill it. Uh, I one time I was like spending too long on this uh, sort of investigative piece and like one of my editors was sort of mad at me because I was supposed to be like editing too. That was probably my fault, but it worked out. No, I don't think I've had anything like what you've probably had at The Stranger. This wasn't at The Stranger, but at The Guardian. So I did some freelancing for The Guardian. And after COVID, my, at The Guardian US, and my editor came to me and asked me for pitches. And I, uh, this was during the Tara Reid allegations, which frankly, I didn't find that credible, but I wanted to write a piece about Joe Biden's, uh, his position on Title IX and Joe Biden in particular in the Obama, Obama administration had pushed these rules that made investigation of people accused of sexual assault 
almost impossible on college campuses and really put the thumb on the scale for the victims. And there was some, some Emily Yaffe did amazing reporting on this. There's some really tragic stories about people being falsely accused of sexual assault. And it just like totally ruins their fucking lives. And oftentimes these are, you know, black guys, um, you know, which there's sort of this, this irony here that in a, you know, in an effort to like protect women and to this sort of, what you would think is like a good hearted, good natured liberal effort to, you know, help victims. What they're doing is like actually perpetuating like long, long histories of, of, of black, of, you know, black men being prosecuted. Anyway, so I wrote this piece about how under Joe Biden's own uh, policy, own Title IX policies, we should believe the Tara Reid allegations against him. Even if they're not true, we should believe them. And I, I pitched this to The Guardian and I wrote it and I turned it in and my editor got back to me, killed the piece and invited me to, uh, in the future, write less about politics. And in fact, she wanted me to write something about like home for the holidays, like how people are dealing with COVID on July 4th. Does this editor like know who you are or like you're bad? Why would they think you're the right person for that? I know. I Like I was confused about why they approached me in the first place. I honestly think that the editor really didn't know who I was. And I've been writing them for them for, for a while. I mean, not that much. I wrote a handful of pieces for them. And I think she just liked the pieces, but had no idea who I was. Also, you, Katie Herzog, home for the holidays is like uh, cuddling with my dog and smoking weed there's nothing there i I don't even fucking celebrate holidays i don't even celebrate christmas come on i'm like the biggest curmudgeon grinch in the world like there's no fucking holidays the only holiday is 420 the only holiday is death (laughs) the only holiday is funerals yes so i did feel like in that case i did feel like the piece was pretty interesting. I thought it, I thought it deserved to be read. Um, I didn't care that much because like they were going to pay me anyway. Um, and I could have like filed it out or submitted it elsewhere if I, if I had felt like it, but I just kind of didn't. Um, so I did feel like in that case, I felt like, Oh, this is clearly, this was after Biden had won the nomination that it felt political to me. It felt like these people don't want negative criticism of Joe Biden. I want Joe Biden to win, as I have stated over and over. But one thing that I'm worried about is that. Like, there's been some great reporting on the Trump administration over the past four years. I am worried that reporters will not put Biden under the same scrutiny. I disagree. I think, I mean, this goes back to my overall theory that things will return to normal a bit if Biden... But they didn't put Biden under this, or they didn't put Obama under the same scrutiny that they put, that they put Trump in. That, I think, is normal. And I don't want that normal. I want, like, a new normal. No, I don't either. But there is, like, even though media is falling apart, I do think there's, in some quarters, there's more robust lefty media. That's so that, true. Like, if Biden, you know, stocks his appointees with people from big banks or does shitty environmental stuff, I think it'll get covered. But I, I share your concern just because progressive media has uh, seems to be in a real nosedive now. That's embarrassing. Yeah, I guess I'm not so concerned that they won't, like, cover his, you know, whatever he, like, wh- whatever bankers he brings into the administration. My concern is more that they won't cover, like, the ID poll shit that is, like, almost guaranteed to be brought into the administration. Um, but that's fine because you and I can do it instead. I was going to say, like, there's been not nearly enough coverage lately of how you and I are transphobic monsters and i feel like people are lay- laying down on the job yeah seriously it's it's uh, it's shifted it's shifted actually it's now on to abigail schreier and joe rogan um okay so uh so next question do you think that outlets like glenn's major claim here is that outlets are failing to report on this connection because they are partisan and they hate donald trump and they might not like joe biden Nobody really likes Joe Biden all that much, but they hate Donald Trump, and therefore they are suppressing negative Biden stories. Do you think that's true? And do you think that is ethical? Do you think that's okay? Uh, is it true? I, I think most of the outlets that have the resources to look deeply into the story, they, they do appear to have done so. I mean, you know, New York Times and Wall Street Journal, among some others, Washington Post, People have tried to better understand the provenance of this story and like what's there and what isn't. Um, I've always been curious if you could get like a, a most progressive journalist drunk or you could flip this and do it with conservative journalists. If it's a hypothetical where it's like a week before a close election and you have some scoop that would damage uh, the guy you want to win, would you run that story? I actually think that in practice, most journalists would not. I think there's a few sort of pure souls who really are in it for the journalism who would. But I think it's an undeniable fact that like most people have a pretty strong preference in an election like this. And that preference sort of overrides their journalistic instincts. Do you agree with that? 
I do. Uh, so let's let's say uh, something lands in your lap today. You get uh, you get the P tape, but it is not the Donald Trump P tape. It is the Joe Biden P tape. That's so hot. That is so hot. Yeah. All right. After, besides immediately jerking off to it, what do you do? After jerking off to it, uh, Jesus Christ. It's five days before the election, dude. I don't know. Yeah, I don't. I don't know. It's different because I'm not. I'm not like pretending to be a straight down the middle news reporter. I just. I don't want to lie and be like, no, I would publish it for the good of people having access to good information. I'm not sure I would. Do you think you would? It depends on what was the P tape like. How much pee? How much pee comes out? If it's just out? him being peed on, then no, because I don't think that's actually relevant. Um, if it's something that's like, like that in itself, like he, so he's got a kink. Well, who gives a shit? If it's he's got a kink and this is compromise that could be used by the Russians, that definitely would make me more conflicted. I like to think I would, I would like do the right thing as a journalist. I'm not sure that I would because I think Trump is such a danger. And so that's the question is like, is, you know, I, I've thought about this before with the, um, the, the, the George Floyd killing. Like if I were on the jury and, and information came out that it, that, it was not that Derek Chauvin did not murder this guy. This is told purely hypothetical. Let's just say it didn't happen. But th- something came out. Like, it turns out that the guy that, that George Floyd actually had a knife and was resisting arrest or whatever. He was actually died from a fentanyl overdose or something like that. And I'm not saying that happened, to be very clear. I'm not saying this happened. This is purely hypothetical. If I were on that jury, knowing what would happen... If Derek Chauvin were not convicted, what would I do? And I'm honestly not sure because the idea of someone being convicted for a crime that they didn't commit is so horrific to me. I, th- th- to me, this is one of the, like, my primary concerns with me too. I just have this, this, like, utter knee-jerk reaction to people being falsely accused and convicted of crimes. I, I think it's, it's one of the biggest tragedies that anyone could go through. And I, like, I, I actually, I like went mushroom hunting with Amanda Knox a couple days ago and we talked about it a lot. And like, not just in her case, in all cases, this is just a terrible, terrible thing. That said, if Derek Chauvin is not convicted of, if not first degree murder of some sort of manslaughter charge, shit's going to get real fucking bad across the United States. And so is sacrificing this one's man life worth preventing, you know, mass rioting and violence and other people, other people would die in that case. Like knowing that other people would probably die if he doesn't get convicted. What would I do? And I don't know. I really don't know. What would you do? Uh, it, if there was real evidence he was innocent, I, I, I don't know why I can't explain why. I just think that's an easier case. I would vote to acquit. Um, but you're right. There'd be real. Because you're racist. racist. Yeah. I just, you know what? I can't, um, I just can't hurt one of my fellow whites because i identify foremost as white because that's a <laughs> real thing and all white people share this uh essential essence we've talked about this yeah before. blue eyes that's what it is yeah my piercing blue eyes and blonde hair i'm a model remember do you have blue eyes? no i have neither no i have hazel eyes and and like hazel does not exist as a color i firmly believe that are you a hazel truther i'm a hazel truther there's no such thing as hazel your eyes are brown they are green or they are brown there's nothing in the middle eye color is a spectrum <laughs> Much like, much like sex. So this stuff is really complicated. Um, I don't know where I feel, where I fall on a lot of these issues. I think they're worth thinking about. Um, you know, when it comes to Joe Biden and the P tape, I like to think I do the right thing. I don't know that I would. That's, that's the truth of it. I guess in conclusion, we can just hope that there's a Joe Biden P tape so that we can actually face these decisions in real life. Yeah, you can email it to us at blockedandreported at gmail.com or just send it to Jesse's personal email. He's really blocked and reported podcast at gmail.com. Uh, whatever. Do not send it to the wrong person. Last question. Uh, do you think that Glenn is a man baby? This is what Betsy, his like fucking editor accused him of being a man baby in a public statement. I think sometimes he has a tendency to um, not react in the most adaptive or charitable way to conflict, which, you know, I, I share that, but I do think, I, I think his colleagues were probably annoyed at being accused of being 
in the bag for Biden when I think the reality is probably a little more complicated, but there's all this internal stuff we're not privy to, so who knows. Right. So I'd say is he a man? Maybe no, but he could sometimes be better about working with others based on what little I've seen. Yeah. He's, I will say, I do think that Glenn is a type of fearless that does not really exist so much in most of the media. You know, when you have New York Times reporters tweeting in unison that an op-ed is going to put put, you know, black journalists' lives in danger. And when you have, like, bloggers talking about how, like, being insulted by Donald Trump puts their lives in danger or whatever, to have Glenn, someone who has really faced actual prosecution in Brazil by an actual dictator, uh, Jair Bolsonaro, um, I do think Glenn is fearless. And I think he's fearless in a way that we really don't see much in the media anymore. So he might be a little bit of a man baby, but I think he's a man baby with uh, hopefully a giant diaper because the dude's balls are massive. (laughs) Well, I mean, that's sort of why I will give him a pass on being a dick. I also like, I have a real bias toward original thinkers at the moment. Yeah. Um, not original for the sake of being original, but original people, original thinkers who are smart. Like, progressive media is just the most, it's simultaneously boring and sterile, but also like menacing in terms of what happens if you step out of line. It's just, it's mostly just boring though. That's my gripe with it. And like today, you'll, you'll never guess. Uh, an interview Vox posted today. Guess what the subject was? Vox, uh, either something about how trans women are women or uh, like how we need to abolish the police. Who's <laughs> abolishing the police? Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah. Octo- it's October 30th, like six months into this latest crest of the abolish the police trend. Vox publishes this like, bl- what, uh, used to be called the blowjob interview. I don't think you can use that word anymore. That's just like, doesn't, doesn't address any of the basic questions, uh, about abolishing the police because you're supposed to be pro-police abolition and you're supposed to – it's just like the same bullshit. So that's why, you know, Glenn should tone it down online. But I'd rather there be more rather than fewer Glenn Greenwalds because we don't have enough. My favorite Vox piece ever was about how hyenas are feminist because it's a matriarchal species. I talked to a hyena <laughs> expert about this. It's not true. I, I did like a fucking like full takedown of this piece because I was so appalled by this like anthropomorphism. Uh, also, a good use of my time. All right. Let's move on. I only understand the basics of this 230 stuff, so you're going to have to do the heavy lifting on this one. As a woman, explain technology to me, a man. All right. So I'll do – I'll explain some math to you after this. Okay. So this week, uh, the U.S. Congress, the U.S. Senate, hauled our tech overlords Jack Dorsey of Twitter, Mark Zuckerberg of Facebook, and Sund- Sundar Pachpinchai – Sundar. It's <laughs> so funny that you you mispronounced his name because Kara Swisher had this tweet that was like, uh, Ted Cruz mispronouncing his name just proves how far we have to come. <laughs> Ignoring the fact that this guy might be a literal billionaire. Like, uh, anyway, you're racist against him. It's a point. His name is also difficult to pronounce. Sundar Pichai. Pichai? Do you know how to pronounce it? No, I'm not racist. So I'm not going to try. <laughs> yeah, don't try. I think he's probably of Indian descent. Um, Okay. So uh, they haul these three tech tech billionaires into into the Senate's uh, Commerce Committee hearing to talk about social media and social media's impact on the rest of us. They are not talking about my hands cramping up from spending too much time on my doom scroll. Um, what they're talking about was revoking Section 230. And we talked about Section 230 in a previous episode, but... To remind you, Section 230 is a provision of the Communications Decency Act of 1996 that ensures that platforms, and that means websites, that means social media outlets, that means like your blog spot or the New York Times, um, platforms can't be sued for user-generated content. So if you, Jesse Singel, are selling rhino horns on Twitter, Twitter cannot be sued by that. Which no one can prove I'm doing. The rumors will unceasing rumors. No one has any proof. It's like the Hunter Biden. Sure, sure. Okay, so you are the one who would be held liable for this, not Twitter. Um, there are a few exceptions to this. Uh, so content that violates copyright infringement, um, uh, content that violates sex trafficking laws. But for the most part, we're allowed to say what we want online, even con- even things that are offensive or illegal. Um, and we we personally, as the people saying them, will could be po- like could in theory be held liable, but the platforms could not. 
And so the reason that that this was added to the Communications Decency Act was to make the internet grow, right? So this is 1996. And the fear is that if platforms can be sued or held criminally liable for user-generated content, then those platforms aren't going to grow, which is kind of obvious, right? Like if Twitter can be sued for for like defamation and harassment, there are billions of tweets every day. Twitter won't be able to function. Either they will have to have be super heavy-handed when it comes to content moderation or they'll just get sued into oblivion and they'll shut down entirely. So this thing enabled the internet to grow to what it is now, for better or for worse, but there's now this bipartisan effort to reform or even revoke Section 230. And the interesting thing is that this is that this is bipartisan, but it comes from very different reasons, right? So conservatives argue that social media platforms like Twitter and Facebook are suppressing conservative consent or content. And this includes like the Hunter Biden story. Um, but they also say that, you know, like, uh, like Donald Trump's tweets getting censored is an example of this, which has happened. Twitter, um, they censored one of his tweets about, I think it was about COVID or something like that. Um, and then on the left, the Democrats argue that Section 230 needs to be reformed or revoked because of misinformation and hate speech. Um, so, you know, Russian like bot farms trying to influence the election or me calling you, you know, tiny Jew boy on Twitter or whatever. So two different, two different reasons. One, one wants to, one, one complains about suppressing conservative content. The other complaining about hate speech and, and misinformation coming to the same conclusion. However, the conclusion itself is, is fucking terrible because it would, it would force, and I don't think there's any way that they could possibly do this. It would force them like, have you ever have you ever been tasked with like moderating a comment section on a website? Oh Jesus! Um, you know, I might have had some like internship gig where I had to do that a little bit, but I it's that's not a pleasant job. No, I had to do it a little bit um, at at some previous jobs, and it's not just difficult. It's like it's incredibly tedious work. But if your website gets a lot of a lot of like generates a lot of content, it can take all fucking day. And social media has you know, billions, probably, I'm assuming, of, you know, posts generated each day. Um, so what they would have to do is either hire, hire people to individually moderate these contents and make sure nobody is saying anything illegal or, or defamatory or obscene or whatever, or they'd have AI do it, which is what they would actually do because they're not going to pay people to do this. So like in short, if Section 230 no longer exists or it's reformed uh, in, a, in a way that like would make these these platforms liable for, for content gener- generated on them, I think it's possible that these platforms will cease to exist within a short amount of time. And, and not only that, like Facebook disappearing, Twitter disappearing might ultimately be good for the world. But Mark Zuckerberg pointed this out during his testimony. This would be incredibly bad for small business, for small guys. Um, Facebook can handle a lot more lawsuits than some, some like new startup can. Um, Zuckerberg is open to amending section 230, which would actually probably be good for him in terms of squashing the competition. Um, but for like, for open dialogue, on the internet, this would be, this would be terrible. This is, I think this is bigger than net neutrality, maybe. This is a huge, huge fucking deal. And yet, Republicans and Democrats are both on the same side about this. So there's this hearing this week. Jack Dorsey, he came in with his like Rasputin beard. He looked like a Civil War reenactor. Um, he apologized for locking uh, the New York Post. So the New York Post, after they published this Hunter Biden story, Twitter not only like suspended people who were posting the the New York Post story. They also made it impossible to tweet the New York Post story. The New York Post is still locked out of Twitter. So Jack Dorsey goes in there and he apologizes for locking out the New York Post. But he also said that they could like delete the tweets and then repost the story. And then that's fine. They can do that. And I'm not sure why they need to delete the tweets and then repost the story. Like maybe it's some sort of glitch in the technology. Um, but it just doesn't make any sense. Like just reinstate their fucking account. Um, one thing that Glenn is also and Matt Taibbi and some other people are also pissed about is that, you know, the New York Post is locked out of Twitter. Most of the media has been pretty silent on this. Like, but if the New York Times was locked out of Twitter for, you know, reporting misinformation, which does happen on occasion, people would be fucking up in arms about this being a free speech issue. Um, so not, I have to say, like, not a lot happened in this, in this hearing. I watched part of it. Marsha Blackburn at one point, um, senator from, I believe she's from Tennessee. 
she she gave a great example of how how uh, hypocritical conservatives are when it comes to things like cancel culture. Like she's you know they're like they bitch about can- like Trump bitches about cancel culture. They bitch about cancel culture, and then of course engage in cancel culture. Marsha Blackburn um, was talking to the questioning the CEO of Google, whose name I'm not going to try to pronounce anymore out of fear of being racist. And she asked if this one particular engineer was still at Google who'd like said mean things about her, implying that they need to get rid of this engineer who criticized one of the most powerful women in the country so that was fun um what else happened hang on a second so all in all i would say that this was a huge waste of time and money and hopefully nothing will come out of it i personally like i i think that you know hate speech is like a, a problem misinformation is a problem i don't think they're nearly pro- that they're problems nearly big enough to constitute censoring the internet as we know it, which is exactly what happened if they revoke Section 230. One thing that's important to note here is that Joe Biden has called for revoking Section 230 entirely. So if he wins, this is something I think that people really need to push him on. I think it's also possible that Joe Biden doesn't understand Section 230. Um, and hopefully... He- <laughs> Wait, really? Yeah, shocking. I don't think... You'd say that about Sleepy Joe. Yeah. And so I think that... Um, Hopefully, like, hopefully he will appoint people to, I don't know, some sort of tech commission who, like, actually understand this shit a little bit better. And he won't just say, like, yeah, it's hate speech. Close it down. Shut it down or whatever. Because this would have really, really major impacts on what we can say online, um, anonymously or under our own names. Um, so, Jesse, you wanted to talk about – so, one of the problems here is that Twitter, Facebook, these platforms are really bad at content moderation. So, you wanted to talk about some examples of this. Yeah. I mean, so this is – you know, only tangentially related to 230, but I guess it, it gets to why so many people. I don't think it is tangential. I think it's entirely related to Section 230 because this is going, like, what's happening now with Twitter moderation is if Section 230 is reformed, this is going to be required of Twitter. This won't be, like, right now, platforms can opt in. They can be as heavy handed or as, or as permissive as they, they want when it comes to user generated content. If Section 230 is revoked, that's going to change. And so, Twitter being bad at content moderation right now is going to is going to be worse if there's no Section 230 to protect them. But continue. Yeah. No, no, no. That's fair. I mean, I, I, we were talking about this offline. I just think Twitter's performance in this these final couple of weeks before the election has just been atrocious. And it's like it's almost like they're trying to give fuel to conspiracy theorists. So we already talked about the New York Post thing, like. New York Post's entire account getting locked. And we talked about how people couldn't even post this story by the New York Post. Uh, some people got suspended over it. Someone brought to my attention this other, like, much smaller profile case where um, th- this dude got in trouble for replying to someone. His name is Josiah Neely. I think he works at sort of a free market think tank. He has, like, 5,000 followers. He wrote, Biden has a longstanding position that the cops should have shot him in the leg. This is true. Biden has said cops should try to shoot people in the leg. Uh, a lot of like law enforcement and gun guys have pointed out that's not really realistic. Like in the heat of the moment, you can't realistically shoot for someone's leg. You're shooting for the center of their body. This was called violating Twitter's rules against abusive behavior, saying a true thing Biden said and the appeal didn't work. They didn't overturn the decision. Um, that suggests either human moderation that is so incompetent it can't answer a basic question about like a high profile statement Joe Biden made or that for this second sort of appeal layer they are relying on like artificial intelligence that also has no idea what it's doing. So it's just like the level of incompetency and I understand Twitter has to review a million of these a second but like it is a very big company with billions of dollars at its disposal. That was one example. The other one was – um. We're going to talk about this in the patrons-only version, but I went on Brett Weinstein's sort of uh, Articles of Unity web show, um, and he said – his whole thing is basically they're trying to draft um, like uh, – who is it? Dan Crenshaw and Tulsi Gabbard to run for president. I think it's Andrew Yang, not Sorry, Tulsi. Andrew Yang and Dan Crenshaw. It's like sort of – he wouldn't call it that, but it's sort of like a third party idea. I, I disagree with it completely for reasons we can get into. But the point is, so they set up a website, articlesofunity.org, where they lay out what they want to do. If you try to send someone a link to articlesofunity.org, you'll get a little message from Twitter, or they will, even in DM, saying like, this is potentially harmful. And you have to hit view just to read it, just to read this. In, to me, silly, but 
completely innocuous website. And what? Well, and they, they suspended the Articles of Unity accounts. Like, I don't think the Twitter account exists anymore. Right. So, like, when Brett told me this, I sort of rolled my eyes. I thought he was being paranoid, but it's true. Like, I, he tried to send it to me and I got that little message. Now, I just, yeah. And this is a, sorry to interrupt you, Jesse. This is a message. So I got one of these yesterday. Somebody sent me some spam and it had a little, a little thing that said like, this message may be harmful. And I clicked on it and it's like, it's trying to sell me some shit. So Brett is getting the same response as like, and I got one today that was somebody like sending something homophobic. It said like homosexist sin or something. Um, so this is, this is, in theory, this is meant to like protect my eyes from like spam or like hate abuse, speech, yeah, that kind of co- abuse, and that this is being applied to Brett's, uh, you know, political platform. Yeah, and and it's just I I disagree. Brett thinks he's being sort of censored by the powers that be because they're threatened by it. I sorry, I think that's ridiculous. But well, what what's your explanation? My explanation is Twitter has no fucking clue what it's doing, and it's just like. Running around, like, I just think incompetence makes much more sense given all the people with bigger platforms than Brett who are quite critical of the Democratic establishment and the Republican establishment and who never get censored. Articles of Unity has not caught on in any real way. It's not a viable movement. Um, well, that's what's so weird about it is why this and not that. Because, because this whole thing is either incompetent human moderators or really incompetent AI and, it's 2020. Unfortunately, Twitter is a huge part of, of media's world, and we have a right to expect better of them than, than this bullshit, which is just it, completely incompetent moderation. And it really does fuel paranoia. Like every conservative in the country thinks they're being shadow banned or whatever, which I don't think is true. But um, I don't blame them for being a little bit paranoid because these decisions make no sense. So, yeah, I you know, I, I'm completely opposed to um reforming or abolishing section 230 uh but but twitter is not acquitting itself well i have a uh, what i think is a pretty hilarious example of this um not on twitter but on facebook so sasha baron cohen you know famed beloved comedian took a position last year that i found really bizarre for him in particular someone who spends his life perpetuating hoaxes on people not perpetuating perpetuating uh my wife pointed out recently that i have to mispronounce a couple words on each episode so here's one for you um so sasha baron cohen he like wrote this open letter to facebook and and he he did some he presented this at like a adl or some sort of some sort of like jewish group talking about how anti-Semitism and hate speech is so rampant on Facebook that Facebook needs to, like, the government needs to be involved in, in like, moderating these platforms. Um, and so, you know, which, like, considering what he does for a living, I find extremely funny because who does, like, who is in office and who do you think is going to be censored first <laughs> if... If, you know, the government can, can like dictate to Facebook what can be on their platform or not. I have a feeling it's going to be the guy who tries to publicly humiliate government officials who's going to be the first in line for the censors, right? So, but even if government isn't involved, uh, Sasha Baron Cohen still wants Facebook to do, like, to be more heavy handed when it comes to moderating. So this is a, a tweet of his from October 13th. Facebook. I criticized you for not blocking false info about COVID. Now your AI is blocking my article because the photo has false <laughs> info about COVID. And so in the photo, he wrote some sort of thing for Time Magazine, and it's called We Must Save Democracy from Conspiracies. And then the photo is a picture of somebody wearing a face mask that says COVID-19 is a hoax. So Facebook censors this. And his answer to Facebook, instead of just AI, use the money you've made during COVID to hire more humans to moderate and fact check. So Sasha Baron Cohen thinks that the answer to censorship is better censorship. Yeah. I disagree with this. I think it is obvious that this is going to go wrong in many, many cases. It's already going wrong in many, many cases. And I'm not convinced that humans are going to be all that much better than AI at deciphering what is uh, what is acceptable content and what is not. And then you have human judgment. Um, so the whole thing is fucking ridiculous. Half of me is convinced that Sasha Baron Cohen is doing a bit and that this will all like he's just fucking with us and everybody who, who cheered this on in 2019 and 2020 will be proven to be fools when he comes out with his next movie in 2022 or whatever i'm losing hope that that's actually true um i think he might just be actually a little bit stupid yeah did you see borat too i fell asleep during it so i watched like the first half and then uh and then i fell asleep i just 
that you know i used to be i used to think he was funny but this brit like i do not like that he pulls regular people into his bullshit i really don't like these people don't deserve it like target are you accusing him of punching down yeah i'm accusing like rudy giuliani is one thing but just like normal people don't deserve to get roped up into his bullshit they don't deserve to get publicly humiliated and i think also like to be frank i think it's like i think it's racist (laughs) i don't know anything about like the 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 ethnic conflict of like kazakhstan or the people like kazakhstan or whatever but i think that what he's doing is like if he were like pretending to be i don't know someone from like like a fool from an african village i think people would have like a very clear problem with it um and they like let it slide because he's sasha barry cohen and he's like a good lefty or whatever yeah, I um, you know, I was a big fan of Borat back in the day. I thought the first movie was good. The, some of the best HBO sketches were brilliant. Um, <laughs> I watched this with my parents, which maybe wasn't ideal, but I, it's funny. Like when the movie ended, I was like, I guess that had its moment. It could have been thirty minutes shorter, and then I checked the runtime, and it was only like ninety-five minutes anyway. <laughs> so I guess it should have been an hour long. But I, yeah, it was just I don't know. At its moments. Um, anything else to say about Section 230 reform or bad social media moderation? No, just like people – heavy-handed responses to problems tend to make things worse or responses made like in the heat of the moment. I also think Facebook and Twitter are incredibly powerful and are not going to let the law be changed in a way that will destroy them. In many ways, they are as powerful as any governing body. So I just – I don't think this is actually going to happen, but I think it's dumb to even flirt with it. Do you think that if – I don't know. I mean, if uh, you're probably right about this, and it is not as though like the Democrats are uh, are not also absolutely prone to like responding to lobbyists. But do you think if like Ber- like we had like a real like Bernie Sanders sort of administration um, with like Elizabeth Warren, uh, you know, manning the Department of or whatever the Senate Committee or whatever, she- womaning? Um, do you think that it's possible that that these tech companies would actually get broken up or or uh, or like strongly regulated? Um, I just feel unqualified to answer that. I just I don't know much about it. I think broken up is unlikely, more strongly regulated, yes, but they're, they they will throw a shit fit uh, against any sort of regulation. So it's, it's always going to be an uphill battle when you're going against incredibly powerful companies. Yeah, and this is one of these cases where, like, I'm not opposed to government regulation in, in many cases. I, particularly when it comes to environmental regulation, I think oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes the stronger the better. Um, but this is one of these cases where I do not think that the federal government is equipped to, I don't think they understand what's going on and I don't under, think they understand the potential consequences. Um, so I'm a, like, I'm concerned about Joe Biden, you know, uh, supporting revoking Section 230 entirely. And I think that one of the things that if he wins, we really need to do, all of us, um, is really like push him on this and uh, make phone calls, whatever, write op-eds, podcast, tweet about it, whatever we can yep. do. Hey, this is our last, uh, this is our last free episode before the election, assuming we find out who wins. Yeah. It is. Yeah. Um, are we doing something for the election? Yeah. For our $10 and up patrons, we're doing a, uh, our every two month, uh, live chat. We're doing 3 p.m. Eastern, 12 p.m. Pacific election day. That'll be about an hour and a half. Uh, Help me with some of my nervous energy so I'm not just clicking around mindlessly. And I stopped smoking weed, so this is going to be my first, like, truly sober. This makes me nervous. Why did you, why did you stop smoking weed? It's a big part of your brand. It is a big part of my brand. I just, I realized that I've never had an extended period of sobriety in my entire adult life. Um, and that seems like a problem. Um, so we're going to see if my brain works a little bit better. I feel like maybe I'll be like a little bit more ambitious, hopefully. Um, maybe a little bit more lucid if I clear out some of the cobwebs in there. So it's been three days and the only major change is I can, I have dreams again and they are wild. Wild. This is something that goes away when you smoke a lot of weed. People talk about this a lot. Um, when you stop smoking weed, your dreams come back or you remember them or they're just crazier, but it's been actually like kind of cool. What kind of dreams? People are tuning out as we speak. There's nothing worse than hearing people's dreams. But last night I had a dream that I was kayaking this river called the Green in North Carolina, big whitewater. And there were people rollerblading on the river. That's what Jesus would do if he came back. He would. He would wear rollerblades and he would walk on water. Rollerblade on water. All right, Jesse, uh, what else do we have for the people? Um, we're about to record a Patreon episode on – what is it on? It's about my appearance on Brett Weinstein's thing, but also uh, – oh, Supreme Court hysteria. People uh, who think they need to get like um, 
Man, my brain, maybe I should start smoking weed more. What's the word I'm looking for? Sterilized. They want to get sterilized before the 6-3 majority sets in or... Sterilized and married. Gay married uh, people. There's like... Right, because gay marriage is right, gonna... That's what people think. Uh, we will reveal all. Do you need to get a hysterectomy or get panic married? Uh, join the Patreon for that at patreon.com slash I'm getting a hysterectomy <laughs> just to play it safe. You should get one. Yeah, you definitely don't. We don't want you reproducing anyway. Doctor, can I get a preemptive hysterectomy? I just don't want to grow any female parts unexpectedly. Well, it definitely has been known to happen. I listened to Alex Jones on Joe Rogan the other day, and he did refer to the gay frog. So it does happen. Uh, check it. Rate us on Apple Podcasts, Blocked and Reported Podcast at gmail.com, patreon.com slash blocked and reported, reddit.com slash r slash blocked and reported. Katie, is that it? I think that's it. This has been Blocked and Reported. I'm Jesse Single, and remember, abolish Section 230, but reintroduce Section 69. And I'm Katie Herzog. And also remember, if Betsy Reed has anything she'd like to say about Jesse's diaper, we're listening. <laughs>